from the eyes of a civil rights attorney to the ears of the people in pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness in the postmodern age of relative truths, reality, and information. This is a Land of Lincoln Lawyer podcast. Thanks for tuning in again, guys. Today is March 12th, 2022. Um, Last time in our uh, initial podcast, we discussed statutory due process rights under the Illinois Public Health Act when it came to the enforcement of COVID-19 mitigation protocols in school districts as against students specifically. Um, As you may or may not know, the governor issued last week another emergency proclamation on Friday, March 4th, 2022. Why? Well, we're going to evaluate that. Um, Again, statutory due process is what we discussed looking at a piece of legislation that was passed by the General Assembly of Illinois many decades ago. Let's look at this issue through a constitutional lens. So, In constitutional theory, there are three different levels of scrutiny that a court will employ when it is evaluating whether or not a government agent or entity um, is is acting within its constitutional purview. Um, Before I get into that, let's talk about one case that was pointed at as the seminal case as a basis to um, refute and shut down any Um, challenges to the executive orders. Uh, This particular case was uh, pointed to and cited by school attorneys and administrators as a basis to represent essentially that the governor governor had unassailable legal authority to do everything he was doing. Shut down debate. No further conversation. That case is the Fox River Inn versus Pritzker case out of the Second District Court of Appeals of Illinois. This case came out relatively early on, and Fox River Inn was a restaurant. Um, their attorneys were challenging the issue of whether or not the governor could continually extend emergency proclamations for the same emergency. So this is a, a case kind of evaluating what are the limitations in the Emergency Management Act? Can the governor continue to extend emergency proclamations in perpetuity? That was really the question that court was being tasked to answer. And their answer to that question was, yes, there's no limitation in the statute that says the governor cannot continually extend emergency proclamations for the same emergency. Fine. So that's what the holding was in that case. What that case didn't get into was whether or not what the governor was doing when it came to um, enforcing his different uh, COVID-19 mitigation protocols, whether or not those, those, those actions were reasonable or, um, as the constitutional test uh, says, uh, rationally related to a legitimate state interest. Um, so let's evaluate what police powers are. So this is the division of power delineated to the state governments through the 10th Amendment. It is the fundamental ability of the state government to enact laws to coerce its citizenry for the public good, including public safety, health, morality, law, and order. Those are just some of the obvious examples. So the police power scrutiny, specifically, and I just said this already, 
um, the action, the police action must be rationally related. Police action, again, being public health, welfare, safety, must be rationally related to a legitimate state interest to public health, safety, and welfare. So what if the police action does not work? What if all of the police actions, good intentioned as they might have been at one point, cause more harm than it prevents? Could the state government compel you to inject bleach, as one famous politician once suggested was an effective therapeutic? Would you stand for that? I didn't think so. Arbitrary and capricious exercise of police powers cannot stand rational basis review. So that's the lens that I want to evaluate this issue from, whether or not continued extensions of emergency proclamations is reasonable reasonable under the circumstances at this point, whether it was reasonable many months ago. And, um, and, and, and so we're going to, we're going to evaluate some of the, some of the statistics and some of the science behind this. So let's, let's, let's lay it all out so that we can have an answer to that question. Now, the meat and potatoes of this presentation um, comes from a speech that I that I gave publicly in December of 2021. Those of you that are curious, I'm sure you could find it. Um, but without further ado, let's get into it. So the biggest issue, I think, the most divisive issue when it comes to COVID-19 mitigation protocols, masks, definitely one of them, and that's an issue we'll get into um, in much further detail in a future uh, recording. Um, it's social distancing, eh, maybe, maybe not, probably not, nobody cares about that. Um, the vaccination policy, um, that has been the most divisive issue that um, our population has, has been tasked to deal with. So I want to I look at that right now first. So it's clear that all available COVID-19 inoculations have been at best ineffective at mitigating the spread of the virus. Well, we, we, we need a little bit of background information. So, so it should be noted that all of the COVID-19 vaccines available up to the present are authorized under the Federal Emergency Use Authorization Act. A prerequisite to the issuance of emergency use authorization for any drug is a finding by the Secretary of Health and Human Services that there is no comparable or satisfactory alternative therapy available. And on that cue, enter the targeted media hit pieces to undermine the efficacy of cheap, inexpensive therapeutics like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin, including the release of fake and subsequently retracted studies. Shocking. Big Pharma has captured mainstream media. I think we all knew that. So, but that's just an aside. Back to the efficacy question. An Israeli study, originally published in August of 2021, conducted the largest real-world observational study comparing natural and vaccine-induced immunity for COVID. The findings were shocking. Fully vaccinated people were 6 to 13 times more likely to get infected than the unvaccinated, and up to 27 times more likely to develop a symptomatic infection. They were eight times more likely to be hospitalized. And that's the critical point. Israel has one of the highest vaccination rates in the world and are now on to their fourth booster. Sweden, on the other hand, having abstained from lockdown measures, reached herd immunity twice over the course of the pandemic with no vaccination mandates. So government date, we have United Kingdom data too from September of 2021 that indicates that 72% of COVID deaths were fully vaccinated. That's been recently updated um, I think I saw a note, I, I haven't verified this, um, that 9 out of 10 deaths 
um, were of the fully vaccinated in the United Kingdom. Um, in Gibraltar, a 100% vaccination rate resulted in a 19 times increase in cases. In Iceland, after nearly 80% vaccination rate, daily cases increased from 10 to 120. Belgium, you went, you had a four times increase in daily cases. So on the home front, though, so what does this look like in the United States? The CDC has quietly admitted it has no evidence previously infected individuals have ever spread the virus. CDC directors publicly admitted the vaccines do not stop transmission, that she had no way of knowing that there was going to be um, a waning immunity. Well, maybe that's because we didn't do long-term clinical studies. So when, the, when, when CDC Director Walensky was questioned before con- Congress, she refused to state how many of her colleagues have even taken the shots. These are the people in charge of her public health policy, and they're, they're, they're reluctant to take the shot. What does that tell you? So at the end of 2021, Dr. Fauci himself even decried the failure of the vaccine programs, and he's suggesting that there needs to be a third, maybe fourth shot or continual annual boosters um, every six months or even more frequently. Um, at the end of the fall season, this is an interesting anecdote. The UC Berkeley football team had to cancel a game because they had a COVID outbreak, but they had basically a 100% vaccination rate. Then you have states like Vermont with the highest vaccination rates in the country. Um, in November, we're reporting more cases than ever before. And at the same time, areas of the country where vaccination rates remained low, according to the CDC metrics, they were trending in the very low end of positivity rates. Medicare statistics indicate that 71% of COVID-19 cases occurred in the fully vaccinated, including 60% of hospitalizations. On October 3rd, 2021, and this is, this is the, the icing on the cake, Harvard released a study that evaluated vaccination rates of 68 countries in almost 3,000 counties. The findings were that the nations and counties with the higher vaccination rates did not experience lower per capita infectivity of COVID. Okay, so we talked about the efficacy. Well, what, what about the other side of this? What, what about safety? So I think it's clear not only are these shots completely ineffectual based on what we just discussed, but they're demonstrably unsafe. The VAERS reporting system, which stands for the Vaccine Adverse Events Reporting System, is a federal system that was put into place a few decades ago to report vaccine-induced injury. And that system reported as of February 25th, 2022, that there were 11,312 U.S. deaths, which is a 40% occurring within 48 hours of the vaccination. Again, 40% occurring within 48 hours of vaccination is there, is there causation there? I don't know. Let's go ask. Let's go ask a medical malpractice attorney. So, in addition to those almost twelve thousand deaths, you have seventy four thousand serious injuries, such as Bell's palsy, anaphylaxis, myocarditis, and female infertility, among others. So, to put that into perspective, our public health officials shut down the rollout of a swine flu vaccine after fifty three people died, and it, again, fifty three people. I just told you there's 12,000 that was reported to the VAERS system. The VAERS system is very flawed. I'll get into that in a second. Here, we, we, we essentially have 100 times that amount represents 200 times the average flu vaccine-related annual death. But the, the, but the, the program continues to trudge forward unabated. Um, I know that there's fewer people taking the various available shots at this point, but 
Nevertheless, they're still out there. They're being pushed and marketed. The Lazarus study of 2011 conducted at Harvard estimates that the VAERS reporting system suffers from under-reporting by at least 10% and up to possibly 99%. So that leaves a projected minimum of up to, what, 200,000 deaths or more if the Lazarus study analysis holds true? VAERS has been much maligned as being unverified and inflated. Um, The fact that it's unverified and unreliable, uh, the irony of that seems to be lost upon the critics, as is the Lazarus study, which the CDC brushed aside many years ago and never substantively responded to. The Department of Defense, for its part, and their military epidemiological database, which is considered to be the premier epidemiological database, say that fast five times, in the world, has shown a 1,000% increase overall in disease and injuries in our soldiers since the COVID-19 vaccination was rolled out including a 296% increase in all cancers, a 275% increase in myocarditis, and an 85% increase in spontaneous abortions. If that's not enough for you, a $100 billion life insurance company based out of Indianapolis, Indiana, revealed that it was seeing a 40% increase in excess deaths of Americans aged between 18 and 64, the age group less susceptible to COVID-19. Interesting, to say the least. So we talked about efficacy, we talked about safety, we talked about some statistics, and um, we didn't really get into the FDA and the, the idea of regulatory capture, uh, which means that we have a regulation, federal uh, regulatory body that is really not doing what it's supposed to do. It's captured by the very industries that, that, are, that it is intended to regulate. Um, and here's some interesting information. The, the actions and inactions, as it were, of our regulatory bodies really speaks volumes in this regard. So, so hear me out. In a Federal Freedom of Information Act case, the FDA requested that the court give them until the year 2076, I did not say that wrong, 2076, to release data related to Pfizer's vaccine approval process, which was denied by the court, thankfully. And so there's a reason for that request. The data is damning. Pfizer's own internal documents reported 160,000 adverse reactions, including 1,223 fatalities during just the first three months of the emergency use authorization period. Again, this is for Pfizer shot alone. You had Johnson & Johnson out there. You had Moderna. Was there another one in the States? I, I'm not sure. But there's at least three. Pfizer aborted the three-year clinical trial after just six months by vaccinating the controls. What that means is they vaccinated the, the people that were given the placebo, the people that didn't get the shot. So what ultimately that, that, that resulted in is an obliteration of the chance to evaluate the long-term efficacy and safety of, of, the, of their shot, ostensibly because their stats showed a 42.8% um, higher death in the people that took the vaccine than in the placebo group. And the ultimate findings of the clinical trials was that the Pfizer shot would save only an estimated, prepare yourself, one out of every 22,000 recipients from COVID. The data was so damning, in fact, that the two top FDA doctors responsible for vaccine safety co-authored an article published in The Lancet in October, railing against the concept of boosters for both the real-world tract ineffectiveness and the known and potentially unknown severe side effects. Prior to the Lancet publication, these doctors resigned their post in protest. Shortly after these very public resignations and FDA humiliation, a group of FDA panelists voted to approve the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer shot on children aged between 5 and 11 
despite a near zero mortality rate, and the lack of data concerning the threat of myocarditis and, and other severe um, health side effects that may impact this age group. I believe data that has been released recently has demonstrated maybe a 10% efficacy in terms of stopping COVID um, in this age group. Uh, but but the FDA panelist is Dr. Eric Rubin, um, who's part of the approval panel, um, which was chaired by Dr. Janet Woodcock. Um, you may be familiar with her name. She, um, she, she, she's the one that was in charge of the FDA when OxyContin was approved. And we all know how that has impacted our country to such a large extent. But Dr. Eric Rubin said, we are never going to learn about how safe the vaccine is until we start giving it. Again, he said, we're never going to learn how, uh, about how safe the vaccine is until we start giving it. Think about that. This is the textbook definition of regulatory capture, where these agencies are not merely, as I said before, impartial. They're the antithesis of independent regulation captured by the very industries they portend to regulate. And they want to use your kids as guinea pigs. Okay, so we talked about um, vac- vaccination efficacy and safety. We talked about regulatory capture briefly. There's a lot more to that that I could probably get into in another episode. Uh, but let's talk about the other mitigation protocols. Because if the vaccinations failed, then surely the other health guidelines were effective, right? No, no, that's 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 incorrect. A meta-analysis published by Johns Hopkins in January of 2022 found that lockdowns should be rejected out of hand since there's no evidence that lockdowns, school closures, border closures, and limiting gatherings have had any noticeable effect on COVID-19 mortality. But they've contributed to the reduction in economic activity, unemployment, reduced education, political unrest, increased domestic violence, and undermining of democracy. So in terms of masks, and I mentioned this earlier too in the intro, I'm going to dive into this in great detail in an upcoming episode, and I'm going to enjoy that very much. Um, there have been extensive randomized controlled studies and meta-analysis of these randomized controlled studies, which all show that there's no statistically significant benefit to continue, continued masking in terms of the mitigation of the spread of any respiratory virus, including COVID-19. Look, guys, in this country and around the world, the COVID response, including the vac- vaccination rollout, has been an abject failure. Quite frankly, it threatens individual liberty on a scale never before seen in human history. We went from 14 days to flatten the curve to perpetual mandatory masking, proof of vaccination to travel, go to school, and to work. And the goalposts have been moved time and time again, each time further away from a semblance of any any semblance of a free society. I mean, think about it. In this country, the, the vaccinated and, and, and around the world, the, un, the unvaccinated have been ostracized and fired from their jobs, disinvited to family family parties. Children have suffered, and mental health has taken a turn for the worse. The fact is, we assume the amount of risk we wish to engage in on a daily basis in a free and open society. This includes smoking, diet exposure to environmental pollution, cellular radiation, driving cars. The fact is, the shot, I don't, I, I, many of us know somebody that's probably died from any of those things. Cars, you know, smoking, diet. The fact is, the shot doesn't confer immunity. It doesn't eliminate the virus. It doesn't prevent death. It doesn't guarantee immunity. It doesn't lessen your sim- symptomatic infection. It doesn't reduce hospitalizations. It doesn't prevent you from passing the virus onto others. And the shot has not alleviated 
the continued imposition of public health restrictions, at least up until this point, after there there was sufficient political blowback to those holding on to power. The shot is is not superior to natural immunity. If the shot works, why is everyone required to take it? Why not just the most vulnerable? If the shot is safe, why is there absolute civil liability protection to the pharmaceutical companies, something we didn't have time to get into? Did you know that? Did you know you can't sue Pfizer if your child dies within 24 hours of taking the shot? This isn't about science. This is about power unrestrained power over the individual under the Orwellian pretext that it is being done for your very own good. I know that was a lot to sit through. There's a lot of information um, to digest, um, but it was necessary in order to establish um, what I'm going to break down for you right now. So though the governor's most recent executive order vests powers back to local systems of government to manage COVID the way that they deem appropriate, this is the school districts, et cetera, this fight, as far as I'm concerned, is not over. And we need to make sure that these facts are not forgotten because though this government power grab seems to be fading into the night, thankfully, it's only temporary. The biomedical security state has its system in place, and the switch can be just turned on at any politically expedient moment. Just wait for a mainstream media cover story. So let's recap. We discussed the police power. We're looking and evaluating whether or not the actions taken by the state government um, is fair and reasonable under constitutional scrutiny. The police power, again, is the division of power delineated to the state governments through the 10th Amendment. It provides the fundamental ability of the state government to enact laws to coerce citizenry for the public good, including public health and safety. In terms of the scrutiny that whether whether a state exercise of state power under the police powers is constitutional, courts review this. And they review this under the rational basis test. Now, there are three different kinds of tests in constitutional um, scrutiny that, that, that courts will employ depending on what is being challenged. The rational basis test is the lowest bar to meet for the government, and meaning it is the hardest to overcome if you're trying to challenge a government action. And so in, in the context of rational basis review, the challenge state police action must be rationally related to a legitimate state interest to public health and safety. So now, with that recap in mind, we have to ask the question, Governor Pritzker, have your actions been rationally related to a legitimate state interest? Legitimate state interest of making sure there are fewer amounts of COVID deaths and infections? Sure, you can articulate that that is and and accept that that is a legitimate state interest. But we've learned a lot over the course of the past two years. We learned rushed to market medical interventions are unwise. We've learned that lockdowns don't work. We've learned that masks don't work. We've also learned that when you change the definition of a pandemic and you change the federal death metric guidelines, a topic that we didn't have time to get into, and then you test people into oblivion, again, testing another topic we didn't really get into, you can scare them into self-destruction and you can scare them into submitting to anything. 
The fact is, it is irrational, not rational. It is legally indefensible and contrary to the public interest for any government agency, chief executive, or other person delegated with apparent authority to require individuals to engage in mitigation protocols such as masking, social distancing, and forced vaccination absent any evidence that these programs are effective at curtailing the spread of the pathogen they portend to stop. In other words, and to reiterate, no, this power grab, it has not been, nor is it now rationally related in terms of continued emergency proclamations to a legitimate government interest. It is, in fact, the arbitrary and capricious exercise of power over the individual. The government's unfettered, unchecked exercise of power over the individual. And unfortunately, that's exactly what the governor has asked of his people in terms of putting up with unchecked power from his administration. Governor Pritzker, have you been rational? Because at this point, we are not staring at shadows on a cave wall any longer, and the shackles are off. This has been a Land of Lincoln Lawyer podcast. I gotta say it, the length is a little bit beyond what I was shooting for. I was looking to do this 10, 15 minute segments so that it was easily consumable um, to my audience. But unfortunately, subject matter of this particular podcast did not lend itself to being actually um, completed um, in 10 minutes. It just just wasn't possible given the information that we needed to go over. So again, I appreciate everyone for listening. Um, I thank you for your support. There will be more to follow. There are plenty of subjects that need to be uncovered and discussed in the context of COVID uh, and other civil rights related matters. Um, And I look forward to bringing that to you in the future. From the eyes of a civil rights attorney to the ears of the people, this is Rob Tomei signing off.